You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. We examine the current events from a libertarian perspective while treating modern politics with all of the irreverence it deserves. We toss out the screaming heads and put people before political parties and give context to the news to make you think. I'm Chris Spangle, and this is a special series on We Are Libertarians called The Swamp Explained. And my co-host for this series is Rob Quartel, a 45-year fly on the wall in Washington, D.C. Rob has worked for Republican presidential campaigns, government agencies like the EPA, and has been confirmed by the Senate to the U.S. Federal Maritime Commission. He's also been a candidate for Congress and Senate. Given his experience and iconoclastic viewpoints, Rob gives us a great insight into the swamp that makes up our nation's capital. And we really enjoyed doing this series. The listeners have enjoyed the last four or five that we've done. So uh, be sure to go back. Just search in your feed for swamp uh, because it gives an insight into the quote unquote establishment of Washington, and how it works. And what we try to do here is to give you a perspective. So you're dealing with realities and human beings as opposed to just caricatures and uh, mistruths or even distruths. So, Rob, it is so good to talk to you. It's been a while since we spoke. We we both had busy schedules, but it's nice to finally link back up and talk to you. How have you been lately? Uh, Pretty good. I I, uh, actually have um, um, uh, moved my uh, out of my big place in Washington, sold it and downsized and uh, and back on my island on the Chesapeake Bay, we've kept a small place in D.C. It's impossible, as you probably may imagine, to completely withdraw from all of that. And we <laughs> obviously have business up there. So, and of course, I still have to eat really good food. Yeah, and, uh, there's you were, not. There's only so much down here. You were telling me <laughs> that on this island, there's pretty much there's just a seafood shack, which sounds like heaven yeah, to me. I, but you're accustomed to the finer things in life. I imagine it's it's tougher for you. Yeah, well, the toughest part is the bar is very limited. <laughs> you know, two whiskeys, one scotch, one gin. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but it's actually, it's really well run. It's, uh, it was recently taken over. The island, in case your, your uh, listeners don't know, is Gwynn's Island, Virginia, in Matthews County, uh, Virginia. On the, um, it's about three hours south of Washington. I've been coming here since I was five. But uh, this, this whole area was very famous over the years as uh, uh, a source for the tall uh, uh, masts of uh, sailing ships hmm. prior to about 1850 because the pine trees grow into the 100 feet plus. I'm looking at three that are over 100 feet in my yard right now. Oh, man. Straight as, straight as an arrow. And, uh, and so it was famous for that. And the other thing it was famous for, and there was a book written about it called Matthew's Men. Uh, which was about the merchant marine in the World War II. And um, there more uh, people from the merchant marine came from this area than almost any other in the country, and more lost their lives. And, of course, that's significant as we're talking about Memorial Day. One of the things most people don't know is that merchant mariners uh, go to sea and they, they dodge the mines at the cannon. When they can't, they sink and die, and yet they uh, really don't get uh, uh, military benefits or any of those kinds of things. And it's been controversial for quite a while hmm. uh, about what to do about all that. And it's uh, they've really never gotten their due. You, you mean the merchant marines? 
Yeah, the Merchant Mariners. And then here in this county, you know, so many of the watermen, and, and meaning the guys who who, who uh, drive the boats that they use for crabbing and fishing, and, and that's the, the primary industry here on shore. Uh, that's what they do. And they were the guys who sailed the big ships through the, in the convoys during the World War II uh, from uh, the U.S. to all the theaters of war. And the, the book was written by a newspaperman from down in, uh, in Norfolk. Uh, very good book. Uh, the Matthews Man, and I would recommend it. But uh, again, I think that, uh, as I say here on Memorial Day, we're, we're uh, honoring all of the, the members of the Army, Air Force, Coast Guard, Marine who died. But people forget that the civilians who died in a merchant marine risked their lives a lot. And more of them died per capita uh, than in any other of the forces of the military. You know, the, I heard a lot about merchant marines when I was younger um, and the world was a little smaller. But I, I, do they exist today? I mean, is their sole goal, goal to protect cargo as it's being shipped and freighted? I mean, is it something that's still in existence or is it sort of something well, that is phased out well, over time? Merchant marine really refers to all of the sailors um, who are in the commercial fleet. Okay, and there, are, there are not so many anymore. And um, those who know me on the Jones Act uh, did a study during the first Gulf War in which I found that, uh, first of all, there were almost no American ships uh, to carry our goods. And we relied heavily, if not primarily, on foreign ships, about 185 or so of the 490-some trips that, to the Gulf carrying goods were on foreign flagships, which performed very well. They're all allies and all that. And then most of the rest was what we call gray hull. There's a, you know, the quasi Navy ships that are uh, the ready reserve fleet and things like that, not formal warships. And then a smaller number of U.S. US flagships. And the guys who sail those are merchant mariners. They're the sailors and the sea captains and the, you know, all those folks. And that collectively is the merchant marine. Mm. So. Um, and, you know, we've talked about the Jones Act and other uh, laws, the March Marine Act of 1920. One of the things that was intended to address was after the First World War, um, they they found that they had, well, as they entered their First World War, we had no merchant marine. We had no uh, commercial ships. Uh, all of our goods were being brought from on, on ships from other countries. And, of course, as the war kind of engulfed the planet, all of these ships gradually withdrew, and we had to rebuild the whole fleet during wartime. Hmm. Uh, and uh, and so after the war, we actually had a lot of ships, and they, the government tried to figure out how to dispose of them without competing with the commercial operators, and, and they did, and they, they did the act, and shipbuilding subsidies to try to get the shipyards to, um, uh, to be able to compete, uh, uh, ship operating subsidies, uh, because at that time, our seaboard labor was more expensive, um, things like that. And, of course, the Jones Act was the protectionist side of that, uh, although it really wasn't part of that whole conversation. It was really kind of a, a protectionist for uh, ships and railroads in the Pacific Northwest, uh, Senator Jones. So it's another whole story. But um, one of the things that is clear from the numbers is that law has not helped shipbuilding in the last half century. It has not sustained a fleet 
in that last half century, and uh, the number of merchant mariners who would be available for a conflict are about um, maybe 1,800, which is hmm. probably 100 or 200 fewer than you would need. And, and uh, the head of the uh, Maritime Administration recently noted that that number includes people who are as old as 78 years old. Um, th these people don't have to go. They're volunteers. Um, it doesn't count people getting injured or blown up as happened in the war. Uh, so we, we really, that this is something that needs to be really uh, thought through in terms of policy, but it, it gets, uh, you know, you talk about the swamp, uh, the, the maritime labor unions and the, the, uh, the Jones Act advocates, and that they are the swamp creatures uh, to the nth degree. And uh, we, I have another story about that. We can talk about it at another point about how they recently bit, bit the big boy and he, he uh, withdrew uh, a kind of a reform, meaning the president when he got bitten by the alligators. <laughs> so <laughs> all right, let's, let me pause. So let me, <laughs> yeah. let me ask a follow-up question just so I'm clear uh, because yeah. I, the, I don't pretend to know things. I just ask questions because, yeah. uh, <laughs> so <laughs> in the United States, there are 1800 people who can do what? That seems like an awfully can, low can number. Sail can sail who ships. Qualified, who are qualified to operate at whatever role they happen to be as, as uh, the mechanics or engineers, as they're called, or sailors or, or officers on commercial U.S. ships. That seems like a stunningly low number of people that are sailors in the United States. It is a stunningly no low number. In 1950, we had uh, something like uh, 60,000 uh, merchant mariners who were qualified at the time after World War II. And, um, and the fact that there are so few left is – is the artifact of the fact that there are so few ships left. Yeah. And, and of course, this is all anybody being objective about it. And if I were a merchant mariner, I would be objective that all of these laws that supposedly are there to protect me and enhance my job and all that have done no such thing. And those of us who analyze it would say, in fact, those laws have actually actively worked to destroy the merchant fleet and the merchant marine jobs that go with it. And, uh, I mean, the, so th th every time you sort of stun me more about the Jones Act and how detrimental it is, and it, and it's it's just typical of any government regulation. An industry, a union, tries to pass protectionist uh, laws, and then it ends up destroying. You know, that's why you look at Zuckerberg going, "I welcome regulation." And you go, "Really?" Because it's going to destroy yeah, your <laughs> business and make your code public. Like he, he'd be uh, out of his mind to do it. <laughs> yeah, you, you. I, I just look at the Jones Act and I go, okay, you went from sixty thousand to eighteen hundred. I don't yeah. know. There's so many little signs like this that, and you have the per perspective of time, uh, which is yeah. a polite way of saying you're of of a seasoned age. Um, right. <laughs> By the way, you know, and now there there are uh, you know companies like Zuckerberg, uh, Facebook. Actually, there are reasons they would welcome some level of government regulation. Um, and that reason is that if the federal government doesn't regulate, um, then all of the states and counties and everything else can impose their own re own regulations. And of course, then they're all different. And you know that that's called balkanization mm. in in the regulatory arena. And you want to avoid balkanization if you're a big company and operating in all these countries and all of these states and everything else around the world. They that's why, for example, they're more likely to 
uh, want to agree to whatever the first standard was, which is really the European standard on privacy, then um, create a whole new one because you got a you know, 400 million people living under that already in Europe. So, um, so you know, there are good uh, tactical reasons to support federal regulation because it's preemptive. Yeah, it preempts all of these other things fighting at you. It, it secures your position in the marketplace too. You can then and that too, absolutely yeah. it does. You can it, then, or it can. It doesn't always. It can. It, it can. But but of all of the of the and you you identified it correctly that basically constituencies form to to protect um, their position once it's been solidified. So you know whether it's food aid. Um, for the shipping industry or whether it's agricultural subsidies for the farm industry or whatever, you always have a constituency that wants to protect that. And, and of course, there's a kind of mythology that grows up around it. And it, we're not the only place that does that, of course. You know, one of the issues in trade negotiations in, in, with Japan, for example, is that they, they for reasons of myth and Japanese honor and blah, 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 all want to preserve all these tiny little rice plots everywhere, which are simply utterly inefficient. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's it, it's part of the the visual image and romantic image they have of themselves as uh, you know both agrarian and everything else at the same time. So so you can never quite get rid of that. You know, in France, it's the artisanal cheesemakers, and so every country has some version of it. But I would say. Uh, very few of them are quite as destructive of the overall economy as the kinds of things like the Jones Act. So, yeah, we really do everything big, don't we? Like destroying our we do, society. We? <laughs> <laughs> like we don't go. Yeah. Texas has everything. Uh, let's yeah. start. But again, so so you know, in the past, I've been repeatedly criticized by the by the, the uh, defenders on the one hand, the labor guys who know better, and and uh, for going after this law because it's failed and. And what people didn't don't really understand is that, in fact, you know, my my reason is because I do think we're going to need. Uh, it would be good to have a bigger commercial fleet. Uh, it'd be good to have more sailors. It'd be good to be competitive, and and it would be good for everyone in our economy if that were the case. But uh, including the merchant mariners themselves. But you know, their glory days were really in World War II and and right after. And uh, going back to my original remarks. They are not recognized uh, to the extent they should be in uh, on a day like Memorial Day when all of the formal armed services are paid their due. Right. Uh, all right. Let's jump into our well, now first and a half topic. One uh, A. Yeah. One uh, B. Yeah. Actually. One B. Uh, you know. You were. Uh, were you, you? Would it be fair to say that you were a fan of Gary Johnson? And that you considered voting for him? Uh, I, you know, what I, you and I talked about really early on is that um, I was so disgusted by the other choices. When I ended up voting for Evan McMullen, who I think was actually a, a good guy. Uh, and I don't know if he's qualified for president, but I would have rather had him than the other choices. Um, I used to like Gary Johnson, and I've met him, uh, you know, and I was part of a, I've been in luncheons or small luncheons of six people when it's, you know, they were trying to raise money, although that's been a while back. Um, but as you, you know, I said, I, I think he could really have have uh, broken out of the whole field if he had um, 
hired himself some social media people and been serious <laughs> about his campaign, but he wasn't. Yeah, so. yeah, that's uh, Ron Nielsen who ran both yeah. of his campaigns and who was was yeah. is running the Weld campaign, which is why right. I would never support Bill Weld for president. Um, yeah. and Matt Johnson's a little crazy, as we all know, or you know, probably smoking too much dope. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, I won't fight you on that. I'm not gonna. I, I won't. Yeah, I'll be polite to my guest. I lo- I love Gary Johnson, and I'm I'm a defender of him. I, I like but, him too. He was a good governor. But uh, you're definitely open to voting libertarian for Absolutely. president, right? And so uh, we have do- been doing a debate series here at We Are Libertarians, hosted by Hody Johns, uh, with the Libertarian Choices for President. And uh, if you it has highlighted how ill prepared the party is or how ill prepared these candidates are to uh, be president for me. Uh, and I have publicly said that there is, uh, I wouldn't vote for any of them for president. I just won't vote for president if it comes down to any of the Democrats, Trump, or any of these libertarians. So I'm sort of in a position where I don't have a choice for president either. I think my criteria uh, for, a, 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 you know, you're, if, you, if you didn't listen to our HW podcast where, where Rob talks about his experience in the HW campaign, uh, which was an amazing episode and truly enlightening about what it takes to put together a presidential campaign. Uh, and it just really illustrated for me how ill-prepared somebody like Gary Johnson was to be president because, you know, he was asked on 60 Minutes who would be in your cabinet, and he didn't have any names. And Bill Weld kind of fumbled and saved him and came up with a couple names. And it's like, how can you be running for president and not know who would be in your cabinet, not have some signature policy positions that you think are doable, uh, have a general understanding of the job? And if Gary Johnson wasn't prepared, the people that are running right now are certainly not prepared for president. Uh, and they're, Rob, I'm not going to yeah, presume that yeah. you know any of them. Most of them are anarchists who are trying to give the very pure <laughs> po- policy position. They're yeah. very, uh, several of them have very serious ag- allegations of abuse towards women and children in some cases. Oh, like yeah, totally. very, the, the very disturbing, uh, some of them. Uh, and, and so, I'm just not generally a fan. So when I hear that Justin Amash might be running for president, I get pretty excited about that. Uh, Justin Amash is the Michigan congressman. He represents the 3rd District up around Grand Rapids. Uh, He was first elected in 2010. Uh, He chairs the Liberty Caucus. He he is a conservative libertarian and a libertarian Republican and uh, is someone that is flirting with the idea of running on the libertarian ticket for president for a couple reasons. Uh, mainly, he's being gerrymandered and also uh, primaried by a local uh, state rep who seems, I saw him on Laura Ingram, who seems fairly serious. So he's going to have trouble being reelected this cycle or next. And so why not make a big splash and go out with a with a bang? He's 39 years old, married, uh Three kids. He is a lawyer. Um, went to the University of Michigan. Uh, he is the son of immigrants, a Palestinian Christian father and a Syrian Christian mother. Um, yeah. And went to uh, University of Michigan for both his bachelor's in economics and the University of Michigan Law School. There is a great interview with Justin Amash by our friends over at Lions of Liberty, where he talks a lot about his his background and his history. 
Uh, he said he's absolutely considering it. I can tell you by talking to a few people in the party, they're they're building um, the Libertarian Party. There's a, a group of people who are building a support system for him already. There's social media, state social media directors, state grassroots directors already being identified. Uh, and there's a group of people that are actively courting him, including I've heard some people at the National Party. Uh, in a hands-off way. And so I look at Justin Amash as somebody that I would love to support and would be proud to vote for, a person who says that his platform would be whatever Hayek wrote. <laughs> and, <Right. laughs> you know, and you go, well, this is a no-brainer. And it, it amazes me when the libertarian people in the Libertarian Party are like, blah, 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 they get mad about it. And I go, really? Because a Rob Cortell, would you support a Justin Amash? Oh, I think I would. Um, what I don't know a lot about him, other than the fact that uh, you know I've learned about him over the last uh, couple of weeks, and he he's clearly articulate. He's thinking about what he's saying. Um, I I uh, I think we can discuss whether impeachment is is uh, tactically or whatever the right kind of outcome right now. But I think the fact that he's willing to be independent um, is is pretty interesting. And he he uh, he's media savvy. He's Intelligenic, uh, he is articulate. He's smart, um, and uh, uh, so if he's not Trump and he's not one of the Democrats, the odds are I probably would. Um, now, for you to think about, um, not most people don't think about this, but uh, enough do, is the tactical side of voting for president. And so I, uh, every other week or so, go to what's called the committee of the concerned and you know the what they talk about is sort of is it's not intended for broadcast per se but you know it's basically a lot of the anti-trumpers and and a lot of real republicans and other people and and you know every week they every other week they have someone interesting and recently they had a pollster who said um who, who apparently did really well and i can't recall her name in predicting the house elections which i didn't do so well as last time uh, even though, even though I did well on predicting Trump, um, said that uh, in, in her analysis, um, uh, the only way the Democrats could lose would be if uh, a strong third-party candidate uh, came in and took away people's votes who would otherwise vote for an alternative to Trump. And uh, you can, and she had done the state by state analysis, and you know the the uh, non-major party candidates last time, I think, took upwards of, what, seven-ish percent, plus or minus, which was pretty high. It was his, uh, one of the highest uh, uh, since Perot and, uh, you know, all of those other guys in the past. So um, so that was her fear. And I, I suspect the Democrats are concerned about that. Uh, you know, the Green Party um, diverted votes from Hillary and, and uh you could probably say that Trump uh, owes his victory partly to them as much as to anything else. Yeah. So, so from a tactical standpoint, you sort of have to uh, think about that. But, you know, I, I encourage everyone to, to – I get a lot of young people who are in politics who I talk to who say, well, tell me about your experiences, and I'm thinking about working with this person and that person, and, you know, you and I – uh, we talked about that last time, a young friend who is on the Democrat side and wants the 
under, he had several offers and I just said, go with the one you really think you'll enjoy working for because first of all, it's great experience. Um, and second of all, uh, if you're good and, and he or she loses, someone else will pick you up. That's talking to a professional, uh, talking to a voter. I, I personally think you should vote for the person you like best or dislike least. <laughs> well, yeah, no, matter, right. no matter what the consequences are, you know? Right. I mean, Gary Johnson and I aligned on 90% of stuff. Sure. Uh, you know, you take the iSideWith.com quiz. He and I were 90%. Yeah. Trump and I were 50-50. And, you know, 50% yeah. Hillary was at 21%. And, like, I just don't – I could see – Well, you know, 90% is better than most people do with their spouse. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> so when you're – and one thing I always try to get libertarians to understand is that – there's a world bigger than our little echo chamber, and I don't think that and, – and a lot of the people who are running for president as libertarian right now are running to be president of the libertarian echo chamber, and they're yeah. trying to – and uh, this happens with every primary. I mean we don't have a primary, but we have a convention, and so you try to out-purity the other candidates, say I'm the most pure, and then you move to the center once you start running for president. Although I don't, I don't think that a lot of these candidates, like I don't think Arvind Vora, uh, the former national vice chairman, is going to moderate his whole thing. Is we've moderated too much in the past, and we've watered it down too much, and we need to actually say what we mean. And and there's some of that that I don't, I don't disagree with him on some of it. Um, but I, I look at it. I, so when I'm judging a presidential candidate, I'm looking for. I, I want to make sure that they actually – I agree with them and they agree with me and that there's some – that we align on enough stuff uh, that they – you know, that they're within the libertarian wheelhouse. Um, yeah. You know, Gary Johnson was not the, the purest libertarian in the world, but uh, he, he agreed on a lot of things with uh, libertarians and was, was good in that respect. Um, yeah. Then – what kind of campaign can you run? Can you run a functioning campaign that actually is going to reach voters? The You can have the best product in the world, but if you have no marketing, no advertising, it doesn't really matter. Just like if you have a bad product, the best way to kill it is through good marketing. Uh, and third, I think, do you have an idea of the office that you're running for? Can you actually be president if you get elected? Can you handle, I think if you look at the way that the press handles Trump, that the establishment handles Trump, you as libertarians should pay attention to that because I think that we go through a lot of that. And do they have the ability, like Gary Johnson didn't have the ability to handle the Aleppo thing. He took one punch and he was down for the count. Whereas the same week, his opponent is saying, grab her by the, you know, and he, right. he gets elected. And, and so do you have the, do you have a campaign and, and a staff that can really function and handle things? And are you prepared for the job? I mean, so that's sort of my criteria, I mean, when you're looking at uh, when you're looking at voting for president, I want libertarians to understand somebody like you who I think if people listen to the show, they go, all right, well, Rob is is libertarian leaning. He's within the wheelhouse. He would vote for our candidates. What's it going to take to sell you this candidate, Rob? What 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 kind of candidate are you looking looking for from the libertarian party that would get you to vote for them? And, and, well, your, I, and your yeah, friends. I think, that's, I think that's fair, but that's a little bit of the same thing the Democrats are, are, are wrestling over right now, which is what kind of candidate can be Donald Trump. As, and so that's why you have this broad 
spectrum of people. Well, let me interject there because I think it's a different thing if you're the Libertarian Party. In so well, many that, ways, that the, the yes, first we're we're not looking to beat to Trump, the right? The, the, party. the goal for th- every presidential cycle is twofold for the Libertarians. First is. It's the it's the libertarian that everybody's going to ask you about. It's the only time your friends and family are going to care about your party, and they're going to say, what do you think of Gary Johnson? What do you think of Bob Barr? And you want to have a candidate that is credible enough in their mind for them to, which is the second part, push the button and develop a new habit. And so right. somebody like an Arvind Vora, I'll pick on him because he's the one that people are most familiar with, our friends and family are going to be scared off by Arvin and they're not going to push that button and build a new behavior. He's just going to activate a lot of uh, people who may not have voted libertarian. And so, so the goal for oh, so, libertarians, so, so Chris, though, what you're doing, you're, 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 what you're doing though, and it's not incorrect is you're, you're thinking like a, um, a political party builder. Right. Um, and that's a little different than um, the, you know, the workers out in the vineyards and the voters. And mm-hmm. so um, you, if you think about, I, I guess the question is, has there ever been a good moment for a third party in the United States? And, um, you know, the, the maybe you need to change and rebrand libertarian, you know, the name, like the American party or something like that or whatever it would be. But, you know, um, it's a bigger issue as to how a party gets built. Um, the Republican Party took, what, two or three cycles yeah. um, at two presidential elections, but several cycles. And it, it, it uh, occurred because of the death of another party, um, the Whigs. And, um, and, well, and, and on the backs of the greatest moral issue in American history. Yeah. And the Whigs, were, the Whigs were silent on it or wishy-washy on it. And the pure party, the Republican Party, came up. And the, there yeah. is some, you know, we don't may not have great moral issues in the same vein as slavery, but uh, that is part of what the purest wing of the Libertarian Party that's running for president now is saying is that we're we're just as milk toast as the Republicans and Democrats, and people want a fiery message. Let's give it to but them. You, but your message could well be something as big, which may, which I think is what's happening all around the, the globe at the moment, which is this sense from the population that the people who govern are out of touch. And they are ineffective, and they are uh, they 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 don't work with each other. They're more interested in personal gain in terms of the the organization of parties than they are in doing good for the public. So, right. you, you know, now the other, you know, there are lots of different dimensions to this issue. You, you look at what's happened in the Brexit in the um, Euro vote this week, just yesterday. Um, one set of headlines was that the um, the Brexiteers had won big in England, and um, and that the far right and the right in Europe had had uh, increased their share but lost. And then this morning, however, I'm looking at an analysis that said, well, the Brexiteers won the biggest number of votes in England, something 39 percent or something. But when you add up everyone else who, who voted <clears throat> for the different candidates and the positions they took, in fact. Uh, it was really about a 55 to 45 vote to, that um, to stay in Europe as opposed to Brexit. And then the implication was that if uh, Boris becomes prime minister, he is absolutely not going to take it back to the voters in England because he knows he'd lose. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So all of these things. So that's the problem with third parties. And of course, I always think about when parties uh, s- split the vote. Um, you know, I spent, I've been to Turkey several times and I was there after one of the, I think it was the third election. And here we have Erdogan, who's essentially a dictator, uh, cloaking himself in the law. Um, and um, he literally, he really won the first time with only about 30 four or 5% of the vote, if I recall. And he spent uh, four years um, solidifying and knocking out other parties. And the second time he also didn't have anything near a majority, but the third time he squeaked a majority. And now, of course, he's in a position where his party loses Istanbul, which is really significant. And he's figured out a way to to, uh, throw the vote out. So this is, you know, the, the tactics and the, and the machinations of parties and and how they work in the public and people's voting systems are very complicated. Yeah. So so, so let's so go I back like, to let's go so back to the question. Of the boxes, I like him. Yeah. What, what would it What would it take for you to uh, What would you like to see from a Justin Amash that would get your vote? What, what's the criteria well, I, that you I don't use? think I don't think that it is um, impeachment that would get my vote. Um, I think that that's something that he, if he's arrived at that as his conclusion, that's all well and good. Um, I, uh, you know, the, the big issue politically for everyone is impeachment. And, uh, you know, personally, I, I'm of the view that even if there is enough to do it, um, there's the better alternative is the, is to unelect Trump. Right. And that's on, only what, 16 months away, I think, or so 17 months away to the next election. And, um, and that's what people should be concentrating on. I, I think we all have become too quick to um, pull that trigger. You know, it's been pulled three or four times, three times in history, twice recently, and failed in every single case. Uh, even Nixon, the impeachment, he would, uh, failed because he just didn't want to be impeached. So he wasn't. So he resigned in order to avoid it. Yeah, so and, here's my thing with impeachment. I mean, I, but Amash is, but the fact that he's willing to take a separate stand, and, right. and he he's probably read the report. He says he's read the report. I admit, I have not read the report. I, I don't have time to read 460 some pages of, <laughs> of lawyer lawyerly tragedy. But, but uh, and I doubt that more than 20 people in that Congress of 435 people have read it either. Yeah, Amash is very well grounded in Austrian economics and economics yeah. in general and would, yeah. would run a campaign uh, that I think would – he's always been the most popular. He's one of the few uniting figures in the libertarian world. Uh, he – you know, if he runs for president, obviously he'll he'll be a little more divisive. But, you know, few people in the libertarian movement – are universally universally praised and you yeah. know it's yeah, like that's right well i can say that as someone who is turned off by both parties um if he ran a campaign that was um uh exhibited leadership but not shrillness um thoughtfulness about issues and positions um in which he showed himself to be someone who could take on uh, people and issues and and he wasn't going to try to get rid of, take us back to the gold standard. Uh, he he actually could get my vote. Oh, okay. I think you get that. I think you know, 
John Potter, it's on the commentary podcast, called him a gadfly. And I found that to be... Um, I, Potterts was making himself look foolish, frankly. I mean, he clearly doesn't know who Justin Amash is. He's much more Mitch Daniels than he is. Yeah, he does strike me that way, Midwestern. Yeah, he's he's much more of a thoughtful, uh, economics-based, solutions-based, uh, thoughtful Midwestern Republican than he is, uh, you know, just some f- sort of flamethrower from the Midwest who's an anarchist. Like, I just, I think... I think the Republicans, it's it's interesting to see when somebody like Amash comes out and they're the first person to say that they're, uh, they'd vote for an impeachment. Uh, you, could look at, you could look at him saying it two ways. First is that he genuinely believes it, and Amash tends to gen- say what he believes. Uh, he's never won a lot of popularity contests in, in his own party, uh, and he's built kind of a little constituency of uh, us libertarian freaks who love that he does that, but he um, he usually says what he thinks, but the second is that he's doing it because he wants to create a constituency. He wants to say later that he is, uh, well, I was the first one to vote for impeachment, so liberals, yeah. you know, never Trumpers, I'm your guy. And maybe, and sometimes it can be both of those truths, but he, you, you sort of see where everybody lines up when somebody does something ballsy like Amash is doing it. Like Dan Bongino, yeah was on Fox News, and uh, he did what every Republican has done since the beginning of time. They claim that somebody like Amash doesn't belong in the real Republican Party. They claim that they're sympathetic to the libertarian philosophy, and Amash just isn't a libertarian based on that like that misunderstanding of their libertarianism. Uh, then they say, what's libertarian about you know the disinformation about what the person originally said and then uh then they claim that he's just oh he's selfish he's just trying to do this out of personal gain and then they repeat it to reinforce their tribalistic points that's kind of the formula and you start to see that uh, uh, along the commentators who are just kind of lying about justin amash and you go i i thought you guys were libertarian leaning what's what's going on here so so let's let's take this another step and which is to impeachment which you and i talked about a little bit earlier and kind of history and all of that and i think your analysis is correct in fact his uh the you know the other congressman and meadows group all you know they basically said he's he's smart guy and he says what he thinks and we respect that and we we agree on 92 percent of everything and so they can disagree on that but um the the whole impeachment thing is i think I don't think – I think the problem for the impeachment thing is that at this stage it feels tactical as opposed to um, substantive. And the people who who've claimed that – who state they are for impeachment certainly make the argument that it's substantive, that Mueller um, effectively um, uh, provided the, the, uh, the opportunity to impeach um, with the obstruction of justice. Um, but – uh, I think to a lot of people, it feels like relitigating the last election. Right. A little bit like, uh, you know, the uh, uh, Mitch McConnell saying that our goal of the next four years would be to beat Obama to mm-hmm. see that he's not successful. And, and I, you know, that's, that was stupid. Uh, uh, the reality is every American certainly should want their president to be successful. Uh, because they're leading the country and you you know I 
you know, I told you, I think I ran into an attorney friend of ours a year or so ago who in the first trip to Korea said, you know, I, I just, part of me, I feel so terrible. Part of me wants Trump to fail in dealing with the Koreans. And the other part of me knows that as an American, I should hope he succeeds. And I, so, so this issue of uh, impeachment, to a lot of people still feels like relitigating the election. And um, I lived through Nixon. Okay, I went to work um, right out of school for the to the EPA and and was living in Washington D.C. and it was just it was two years uh, it was two straight years of pounding and pounding on impeachment and for the a good part of that it felt like the people who had hated Nixon for thirty years his entire career were just taking that hatred out and um, but nevertheless they actually had a, a nixon compounded his um the situation you know in, in a management school later it was compared to a snowball situation that you know you, you something starts to roll down the hill and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and, and it's in, at the end it's uncontrollable yeah and a lot of and they they use that to describe what happened to nixon Human human rhetoric and public policy follows a lot of that as well. I mean, you look at some things right. that are just – it starts at one little thing. It's like the Green New Deal. It's like the, you have to really kill that in its in its crib because the Green New Deal, people might actually start to believe that that might work if they think they're going to die well, in 12 years. So but, but, little things like you, that. Even even the Green New Deal, you can, you can take it apart and say, okay, well – the goal, this goal might be uh, stated in a way which is objectionable, but what's underlying it? So would it be good that every building in the, in the United States was green? Um, I suspect you would say yes. Right. Uh, and would it be good that we, that our, we were a self-sustaining in energy and that um, uh, we, that the energy production we pursued uh, was clean I think you'd probably say yes, but how they they want to do it in the naivete and who pays for it, the tactical aspect. You really have to separate in almost everything in Washington um, the tactical aspect and from the intent and from the language used to describe it. I mean, you really have three different pathways. So, um, you know, when I, I think I told the story once before, I, I was in Lafayette Park the day Nixon resigned, uh, you know, saw the top of his head um, on the other side of these crowds hanging on the fences at the White House like vultures. And it was palpable, just this massive sense uh, of history and, and anger. And um, and we, I don't think we are there yet with Trump. Um, I think there's if the Congress is going to do it. They should go ahead and do it, but that's not going to win them the election. And I think that's what Nancy Pelosi understands that, uh, you know, in my mind, the Democrats, and this applies to Justin Amash too, if they want to do something to get people's attention, they should do something, you know, something real. And um, uh, and I think the, the public is really tired of posturing and tired of people just bashing whatever the other guy says. Yep. And, you know, I've, I've run. I understand that. But, uh, and, and, of course, I lost. And maybe because I would sometimes say, well, you know, 
what he said is not a half bad idea. <laughs> so, right. But you're not allowed to say that in politics, you know? Yeah, you're not allowed to agree with the other side. No, I think well, I think Joe Biden is getting that. You know, Joe right. Biden, sort of like Mitch McConnell, um, was a, a deal guy, and and uh, when uh, when uh, George Bush or or Bill Clinton wanted somebody to pull the two sides together and pull a rabbit out of a hat, um, you know, Biden and McConnell and and uh, some of these other guys who who are professional senators knew what to do. They could reach out and get past the rhetoric and find a way that helped people save face. And of course, Biden is getting immense, immense criticism in the Democratic Party for saying that he would reach out to Republicans. Right. And and I think he means it. And I would like to see someone who would reach out to the other party. And, you know, Amash. Um, so I think he's gotten people's attention. What he should now be doing, um, ideally. He would be, yes, building an organization, but at the same time, trying to galvanize uh, people outside of just, you know, not just libertarians, but other people um, around a couple key ideas. What's wrong today? What should we be doing differently? Well, his signature bill was, I think, working with Representative Conyers, um, trying to uh, reign in the NSA. I mean, that's been one of his signature issues along that's with, good. Along, a good thing. along with budgets. Yeah. So yeah. I, I look at impeachment and I, I agree with your assessment. I think there, uh, I don't buy the administration's argument that you can't commit obstruction of justice. If the crime that you're being investigated, that never like never happened. That's just ludicrous. Like, of course you can commit obstruction of justice, but I, I feel like the points that Mueller laid out were, were lukewarm at best and i would be the first person you know i was very critical of trump in 2016 and they have at times made me sympathetic to trump because the press has made me sympathetic to trump because you look at cnn and they wake up and they go well we know trump must have done something wrong today let's find out what it was as opposed to what's happening in the world today let's report on on what we find and and those are and so you look at the the propaganda quite frankly around the russian collusion narrative that we're what whatever we know this happened we're going to make all the pieces fit and you make people like me go i don't like trump but i really hate liars and you guys are trying so hard to lie about this guy that i'm just not gonna buy it and had Mueller come out and said here's the clear evidence i would have gone all right i was wrong for the last two years uh but you know, you know that, I, I think that, and uh, so hold just one, just yeah. one. Let me finish this last point. I think that didn't happen with the Mueller yeah. report, and so therefore you sort of go, well, I'm. This is all just kind of a shrug and a waste of time and money, and so his obstruction isn't clear, and so because it's sort of fruit of the poisonous tree, I don't really care that much. Let's move on, and I think that's well, sort I, of where I, the country's I, at. Well, I think that uh, the the Mueller report was a great disappointment to the Democrats yeah, right. uh, and and uh, uh, other people who um, so dislike Trump because it was it, there was no smoking gun. There was no clear path. Um, a lot of the, the things in there from what I have read are anecdotal and you can understand. I, I continue to this day to believe that um, a lot of Trump's uh, behavior is motivated by the fact that he just has never thought about what it's like to have to be a politician. And this is kind of what you get when you when you elect someone who hasn't been 
uh, a politician and who spent his career trying to to uh, maybe I don't know if I, it's too strong to use the term bribe, but to move <laughs> political figures <laughs> based on something other than pure merits. <laughs> so yeah, you know, I th- and and a lot of business guys just think this is the way the world works. A lot of your listeners, no doubt, think this is the way the world works, and. It, it, you know, D.C. is very complicated and an impeachment proceeding is going to be very complicated. And um, and uh, I just I think they're out of their minds. Now, I think the best thing Trump could do would be to let Mueller testify, because I think it's going to be a pop gun, you know, all bang and no, no nothing after it bangs. And I don't think there's seems to have been any smoking gun. And um, uh, so. It gets back to, do you really want to spend your time doing that? And if you do, are you motivated by seeking justice or are you motivated by hatred or, you know, really litigating the election or just whatever else? And it feels like that when the New York Times goes back and through his tax returns and the New York State legislature is now passing a law, which in my opinion is ex post facto, if they pass it to allow tax returns to be subpoenaed by a committee of the Congress, you know, you have to ask yourself, um, uh, it doesn't matter. Is the president, yes, I think we all say the president is not above the law, but is the president below the law? Is Should the laws not apply equally to the president in the other direction? Meaning, um, um, if my tax returns can be subpoenaed, fine. And if my tax returns cannot be subpoenaed and released, then why should his? And, you know, everyone knows that they leak like a sieve. And if they get them, they will be made public. And I think he probably has a right as an American, uh, not just the jackass that he is, Mm. to have his privacy protected at some level. Being president does not um, – take away your rights as a U.S. citizen either any more than it gives you rights that other citizens Well, and it have. carves out that exemption that they that any citizen yeah. is subject to the same treatment. I think I, I agree with you. And what, what I think Democrats, they have worked themselves into this place where they think that everyone just thinks he's such a buffoon, which I think most people do. But they they failed to see his genius as a campaigner and his genius at being the victim and getting people to yeah. feel sympathy for him. And I think that if your strategy going into 2020 is the same strategy that has lost for 16 Republicans and Hillary Clinton and congressmen now, uh, that you're going to underestimate him, you're going to let him be the sympathetic figure, and then you're going to decry, this is not who we are. We're a better, an appeal to people's higher morality, like that you're just going to lose again, and we're going to get four more years of Trump, and you're in the process going to carve out a culture that keeps people from Mitch Daniels or Justin Amash from running, and then you just end up with the lowest common denominator running for president, and that's sort of why I don't support impeachment. Like if they had come out with his tax returns and say, you know, he's a puppet of Putin because he's taken all these Russian loans and he launders money for Russia and the Saudi Arabians and he's being controlled by them because of his financial dealings, I'd go, we got to get this guy out of there. But that's not clear. None of that is none of that no. is well articulated. And so the Russia thing is a complete zero and they think that they're going to win 
by keeping the pressure up and getting him to act crazier and crazier. But I got to tell you, I don't know about you. I just don't hear about what the president says anymore. I don't follow what he says. Like I've sort of zoned out from whatever crazy thing he said. Like I'm just sort of, I don't know if it's not going to report it as much. A lot of people have. And um, in fact, uh, the, the, uh, I think it was the French ambassador who just retired was quoted as saying that he had, he had counseled, uh, the ministers back in France, I think it was the French minister, um, but a European uh, ambassador, to, to pay no attention to the tweets and the, and the rhetoric. Um, they should instead listen to what people around him are saying and, and uh, give everything time to cool and not to react. And right. I think um, that would be true, certainly, of most foreign leaders. They've sort of figured out this is his personality and it's got only so much substance to it in the tweet. Um, and I suspect voters are the same way too. So, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, but he is, he is there. He is breaking some China. Um, I, I think, uh, China <laughs> breaking some China. Yeah. China is very complex too. You know, we, um, uh, we have been negotiating these deals for two decades and I think everybody, left or right agrees the Chinese are conniving and thieving and steal our, our secrets. And um, uh, I just heard, know. I just to that point, I just heard Newt Gingrich on Ben Shapiro's Sunday special say that it's like 400 and some $480 billion in intellectual property theft a year, which is more than they steal more than we sell to China, which was yeah. so well articulated that if Trump could ever have the discipline to learn a fact like that, you might go, oh, I kind of see his point, but he, he just doesn't have but, the ability. But, but this is where, all the, but this is where so much of what's going on is obscured um, to the outside world by the kind of the rhetoric and the tweets and everything else and, and the people who listen to this. Um, what we should really be worried about from the Russian uh, from what Mueller learned about the Russian thing, it's not uh, about Trump. It's about the Russians right. and about our inadequacies as a country to prevent them. And now the the uh, Koreans, North Koreans, and now the um, you know bad actors in uh, uh, across Central Europe and other places from uh, um, spreading disinformation and lies and you know i there was a survey recently done of the internet uh that over half of what is on the internet is fake news it's not real and so what we should be worried about is that we have not figured out a way to control our own destiny free of that kind of interference and and you know most of the states are not ready for the the next election (coughs) to prevent hacking and so some of this some of the states are going back to paper ballots for example because they think they can't be hacked well people's brains are hacked Before they get to the ballot box. Libertarians have been claiming that for 50 years, uh, Rob. (laughs) (laughs) But by that, I mean, you know, it's again, it's if they're reading, if they get their news off the Internet, um, 50 percent of it is fake and and is put there by people who want to mislead them. um, And and they're they're deliberate provocateurs. And that's that is what we have not learned. And that is what the Democrats should be. 
focusing on. That's what the Republicans in the Senate should be focusing on is how to uh, protect this country from that kind of subversion. But and to your point, though, I would argue that Democrats, like with the Russian collusion narrative, Democrats are are trying to invent reality as opposed to saying this is the reality. Let's move on. Like they're they're actively engaging in a narrative that I see people every day on my Twitter who work at news outlets who are buying into just a flat out conspiracy theory, still trying to make this thing fit. And you go, you know, you're you're yelling about Alex Jones creating fake news like. Yeah. Come on, like you're living in an alternate reality, like you're just making things up. <laughs> Did you, but, you know, Goebbels said that if you repeat a lie often enough, yeah. it becomes the truth. Yep. And 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 we see that. And I don't believe I think people objectively should think about this. That is, do you I think this raises other questions we really are not addressing as a society. Do you want um, Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or somebody else to be the censor? Do you want them to decide what's fake and what's not fake? Um, personally, I don't. I'd be happy to have them rate news articles by whether or not they could be documented, but I don't want them censoring. Right. And I don't think you should either. I, I certainly don't. <laughs> I definitely there don't. You go. Uh, so. All right. Well, we're just about out of time, so we got to go yeah. to your the Diner's Guide to DC. Rob, oh, yeah. Rob loves to go out and drink and eat and uh, <laughs> carouse, I might say, uh, and at local DC establishments. So, what is a great spot if you're heading to the nation's capital? What is a good location for you to dine, drink, or just have fun when you're in Washington DC, Rob? Well, so uh, there's a new one. Um, that um, we just went to in Georgetown. It's kind of hidden away. It's called Reverie. And uh, Sitsuma gives it two stars. I would give it a few more than that. Um, and it's, um, but what's interesting is the chef, this guy, Johnny Spiro, and he has just this terrific resume. He, he, um, he worked in, you know, uh, in Copenhagen and and uh, this restaurant Margaret's in, in Spain, which is re really famous. And he worked with Jose Andre, who we've talked about before, who has this dining empire now, he's Spanish. Um, he actually, he worked uh, for um, uh, an another of Washington's best restaurants uh, um, in at Little Washington, and then went out to California where he and his wife worked for, um, uh, they, I think he did that. But in any case, he has a great, back backstory and then um and and he um the food's great you know it's just it's uh uh it's uh, what you call sort of new american i guess uh lots of it's sharing plates you know you get a couple different things and share with people and of course the listeners who would go to washington know that share plates are kind of the thing these days um they're the kind of the thing for restaurants one of the little dirty little secrets because people always order more than they need and um, and these plates end up costing you more than if you <laughs> bought an entree and a, <laughs> and a side the old fashioned way. Uh, so I would recommend to anybody eating in Washington that if it's one of these places where they share plates, they'll say something like, oh, how many dishes should you get? You'll ask the waiter and he'll say, oh, four or five each, depending on the restaurant, maybe three or four, um, kind of cut that in half. Um, and I think you'll find that you have a, a meal that 
is sort of in the right place. But Reverie is really a terrific, terrific restaurant. It's in, uh, um, as I say, it's in Washington and Georgetown. It's, it's very hard to find, but uh, it's it's hard to get into. But it's really, really worth it. And uh, um, and then there's one that I'm hoped to have tried by the next time we talk called Little Havana, um, which is uh, obviously Cuban. So I'm going to be working on that one. And um, in fact, I'm going to be in D.C. next week, and I'm going to try to hit that. Um, there are some others, St. Anselm, which is uh, they rave about. It's really a steak place. I think it's okay. It's good, but it doesn't do much for me. And then the other restaurant that my wife and I went to, the last time we were up there is called Rooster and Owl. And um, it also is just a terrific restaurant. And it's a chef and his wife uh, drive it. It's on 14th Street. And um, it's uh, the, the, the chef is uh, Yuan Tang. And uh, they, uh, it's just a great restaurant. <laughs> Try it. <laughs> what else can I say? Very cool. All right. Well, I uh, I hope to try some of those soon. The Little Havana sounds good. I love yeah, Reverie, Rooster and Owl, and Little Havana. Anything south of the equator, uh, even even uh, Frog Legs from Louisiana. I'm all all I'm all. Ooh, I like those too. All right, <laughs> all right, <laughs> all right fi- Chris. Final thoughts. Time. Final thoughts. Uh, well, it's going to be interesting. I think that the summer is a slow time for for politics and politicians, and um, as they go home, I. I suspect there'll be some different messaging. One thing that I did see recently um, to keep in mind as the Democrats sort of parse out their election, most of these guys and women are running so that they can be mentioned as a former presidential candidate. Mm -hmm. But as you look at how it's parsing out, what you need to keep in mind is that that something like 55 or more percent of Democrats self-identify as moderate and even conservative. So um, that may be why Joe Biden is where he is. And, of course, the other part of how people win is by having name identification, and he's certainly gotten that. But, you know, lightning strikes like uh, happened to Donald Trump, but he also won by sheer force of personality. Right. I mean, name ID is the most important thing in politics, and this guy's been in your face for 30 years. (laughs) <laughs> yep. yep. Yeah, that's right. We're in a different era. So, so anyway, Chris, that's, that's the way it is, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a good, that's our new sign up and that's the way it is. Uh, right. Was that, was that Cronkite? Uh, I think it was Eric Severide, okay. but I may be wrong. <laughs> Although he was Cronkite. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Very good. All right. Thank you so much for joining me, Rob. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Are Libertarians and The Swamp Explained. And uh, we will see you. Hopefully we can get back into rhythm and do these a little more often, Rob. And uh, we're both busy, so it's tough to get our schedules to mesh. But as, as soon as we can, we'll be back. So, all right. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time.